The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone. So let's now get down to the uh, questions and see what happens. There's heaps of questions today. That's always marvelous. Uh, um, means we have a bit of interaction, which is great. Uh, Dear Bhante, greetings. Are monastics allowed to eat non-vegetarian food? If yes, isn't it breaking of the precept of killing beings? Uh, are they allowed to eat non-vegetarian food? Yes, they are allowed to do that. Is it breaking the precept of killing living beings? Uh, no. <laughs> That's the short answer. Uh, because uh, killing actually means killing. Yeah? It means that you have the intention to kill. Um, if the uh, meat has been killed for some other reason, then uh, you can kill it. Uh, you, can't, you can't kill it, you can eat it, uh, according to uh, how. This is how the Buddha himself is uh, said to have eaten meat if it was offered to him. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, as a monastic, you accept what you are given. That's kind of the idea. You don't usually have too many demands one way or the other. Uh, uh, what you cannot eat, you cannot eat meat that has been, been specifically killed for you. Uh, if it has specifically been killed for you, then you can't eat it according to the uh, rules of, uh, uh, for monastics. Uh, but otherwise, actually, you can. Uh, there are monks in the present day who prefer to be vegetarian, actually quite a lot, monks and nuns, and obviously also lay people as well. So it can be done, but it's not uh, laid down as a specific rule by the Buddha. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those questions we get a lot, so uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Dear Ajahn, uh, my defilement seems so much more destructive when I'm not well slept. I've contemplated that tiredness is almost an intoxication to the mind in this sense. Uh, in particular, I notice ill will towards myself, worrying other people are thinking negatively about me. Uh, is it a matter of being more mindful of such days, uh, or do I need to reflect on this in a different way? Uh, with mega meta. Um, Yes, I think this is exactly what happens. If you're tired, then you tend to be more irritable and you tend to, many things go wrong when, you, when you're tired. I think that is a, a very good point. And I think um, the obvious answer is to make sure you get a good sleep. Yeah, this is kind of the obvious answer to these things. And it's, I think it's well known that in the modern world, a lot of people don't really get enough sleep. So try not to be one of those. Try to be one of those who gets enough sleep. And then you will be more mindful. You will have more ability to deal with your defilements and all of these kind of things. Uh, but I think um, if you really are, um, if you do have, there will always be days when you don't sleep well. So uh, how do you deal with those days, I suppose? Uh, and uh, one thing is just to go with the feeling. No, notice how you feel. Yeah, You feel bad. You feel, don't feel particularly happy. And just that awareness of the feeling and not buying into it and then acting from it, but instead just feeling the dukkha. Sometimes when you just feel the dukkha, you can have compassion for yourself. Oh, I feel miserable today. <laughs> oh, poor me. Yeah? And when you have that compassion for yourself, uh, you don't tend to react so negatively to other people. Because compassion is the opposite of reacting negatively very often. We are kind instead. Uh, we care. And then we can avoid doing destructive things, as you say. So self-compassion is one of those very useful little things on the Buddhist path. Not just on the Buddhist path, but in psychology in general, it is regarded as a very positive thing. So when things don't go right, you're not so hard on yourself. You're, okay, this is the way it is. And when you're not hard on yourself, usually you are able to live with more insight into what's happening. You're able to live with more kindness as well. Yeah, very often when we are hard on ourselves, we're kind of shutting ourselves down. And the moment you shut yourself down and you judge yourself, you cannot observe what is going on. So you lose the ability to understand things. But if you go with the flow and you just accept whatever is coming and you see it neutrally rather than with judgment, you can understand what is happening. Then you can change your 
conduct or you can change what you're doing because you understand cause and effect. The worst thing we can do is judge ourselves harshly. It's a very useless thing to do. You make a mistake? Okay, you make a mistake. Yeah, You just watch it, observe it. You don't come, become hard on yourself for that. All right. Dear Ajahn, most of the meditation retreats and guided meditation instruct on focusing on the breath going in and out uh, rather than uh, sequentially going through the four domains of Anapanasati. Shouldn't we be going through all the 16 steps in everyday meditation practice to reach the final stage? Ideally, yes. In practice, probably no. Because <laughs> all the 16, if you really went through all the 16 steps every day in meditation, you would be an arahant the first time. Yeah, you would be finished. No need to do anything more. The hardest part of the Anapanasati meditation is the forced first factors. The hardest part is even to get to the very first one, yeah, being able to see the long breath. That's the hard part. Because that is where you have to have enough mindfulness, you have to have enough peace to be able to even stay with the breath and to see what's going on. But if you can do that, the rest almost happens automatically. You don't have to do very much. This is not about going through the stages, it's about allowing the stages to happen. If you try to go through the stages, you say, I'm going to do this one, this one, and this one, far too much willpower. And maybe you can fool yourself into thinking that you're going through it. But you're not. You're not really going through it at all because you're just forcing your way, forcing certain perceptions to arise in your mind and not going anywhere. So go, go to the first stage, watching the long breath. And once you get to the long breath and you can do that, allow the whole process to unfold. You just stand back and observe and allow it to happen. And if you are able to stand back enough without getting involved, the process will happen all by itself. That's when it's beautiful. That's when it's powerful. If you try to make it happen, you lose all the sense of wonder and marvel of this process. You're forcing something, but it doesn't come naturally. It is no longer nice. You lose the, um, the power of this whole meditation process. This is not something to be done. It's something to be experienced. It's not something to be appreciated as the process happen happens. All right. Dear Ajahn Brahmali and Ajahn Nisara, <laughs> thank you to your presence and teachings. It means a lot to us. May the merit generated through our practice be a cause for your liberation and your wish, Venerable Sir, Sadhu Anamodana. Okay. Marvelous. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. That's very good. Huh? This is a sign we're coming to the end of the retreat when we get these kind of <laughs> messages. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say those things. Uh, so, the Ajahn, question. How does Anapanasati Sutta form part of all the four domains of Satipatthana Sutta? I'll talk about that tomorrow. We still have one day left, yeah, with two sessions left. So we're going to still have a lot of Sutta discussion going on. But the um, main idea is that um, as you practice Anapanasati, yeah, the, uh, in the beginning, because you are following the breath, the breath is a bit like a body. It's part of the body. It's a physical experience. So it's part of kaya nupasana. Then as the breath becomes more refined, you start to feel piti sukha. You start to feel good feelings. That's part of vedana nupasana, contemplation of feelings, because that's what you're experiencing. You're contemplating feelings. Uh, as your mind goes even deeper, the body and the senses start to disappear. You're left with the mind, with uh, the kind of the lights in the mind and these kind of things. Uh, that's chitta nupasana, because that light in the mind is really an uh, experience of the mind devoid of the senses. Uh, take that to the very end. Avimochayang chittang, step number 12, is where liberating the mind, that's kind of going into samadhi, where the mind is liberated from the opposing things that stop you from accessing samadhi. And then the steps 13 to 16 are all about contemplation, contemplating what happened. Anicca nupasi, viraga nupasi, niroda nupasi, patanisagga nupasi. That is all about contemplating what happened in that process in reaching samadhi. And you're seeing the changeability of things in that process. So that's in brief how it works. We'll maybe come back to that tomorrow if necessary. 
Dear Ajahn, how should one practice in daily life and on cushion after establishing sila? Is it like this? Sila leads to mindfulness. That is Satisampajanya, Anapanasati, 12, six, with 16 steps, Satipatthana with four domains. Is it like that? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of like that, yeah. This is roughly the same idea. So you have the sila. Remember, sila is very profound. Very Sila is one of the most difficult things to establish. If you really have deep sila, samadhi is... All meditation is very, very easy. Sila means metta. It means compassion. It means all these good qualities built up to a maximum. If you have a lot of sila, you have an incredibly good life. It's the best kind of life. You always feel good about yourself. You feel kind towards others. Everything falls into place. Sila is very, very powerful to create a good life for yourself. And then, of course, then mindfulness is established. Why? Well, because if you feel good about yourself, you're going to be in the present. You don't want to think about the past and the future. They're going to seem like dukkha compared to all the happiness you have now. So you're just joyful. And, of course, if you are in the present, watching the breath is really easy. Yeah, really easy to watch the breath if you are in the present because you're already in the present. The breath is there. Okay, so you can't avoid watching it. It just happens. Uh, and then this whole process I'm just talking about now, the 16 steps, because you are able to watch the breath, it all happens by itself. You just stand back, bang, the bliss comes. Uh, and the satipatthana happens, and everything just goes all the way. Uh, and you attain a jhana state. You come out of a jhana, and afterwards you see things clearly because the jhana state enables you to see things clearly because you have seen all the dukkha passing away. Now you know that it is all dukkha. You know it's all non-self because you have let go of it. You can't even access it in jhana, etc., etc. So all of these things happen like that. So it's roughly right what you're saying here. But uh, the most important part is the beginning. The sila is what really is uh, the most significant aspect of all of this. I hope that makes sense. And if it doesn't, well then... Uh, I don't know what to say, then <laughs> try again some other time. Dear Ajahn, many thanks for your teachings. Following from the afternoon session, does it mean that Satipatthana uh, can't be applied to daily living <coughs> as it is a more refined practice? Essentially, yes. Satipatthana is what you do on the cushion. It's what you do when you're watching your breath. It's the real meditation. What we do in daily life, I would call sense restraint. Yeah? Or satisampajanya, being aware of what is happening, ensuring that you keep the purity of the mind. I wouldn't call that satipatthana. If you call that satipatthana, you are lowering it down to something less than it actually is. It's a very high thing, satipatthana. It's a very refined Aspects of, of refining the mind through meditation. That's really what Satipatthana is about. Uh, you may think, oh, what does it matter what we call it? It's all the same anyway. And it does actually matter what we call it. Because if we call it by the wrong name, we think we are doing something when we're not. Uh, and it means we are less likely to understand uh, the depth of what we're supposed to be doing here. And this can uh, uh, destroy the um, end of the path, so to speak. And uh, you're no longer able to reach those things because uh, you don't understand how profound they are. So, uh, yeah. Well, I'm getting quite efficient. It's good. Uh, <laughs> Dear Adran, can you please explain the Vedana meditation? Thank you. So, you like the Vedana Nupassana is what you mean, presumably. And um, uh, there's also, yeah. So Vedana Nupassana is, um, we'll come to that tomorrow because this is part of the Satipatthana Sutta. Yeah? So it's all going to happen tomorrow. But to, to give you a little kind of preview, uh, in the, the way this is taught in the um, Anapanasati Sutta, it just says uh, you observe the Piti, then you observe the Sukha, then you observe the Chitta Sankara, then you observe the Chitta Sankara Pasambati. So uh, you, it's all about happy feelings, right? Uh, piti is obviously happy feelings. Uh, kind of when the breath becomes very peaceful, you feel all the piti, mind and body. Sukha is a deeper kind of happiness, according to the suttas. Uh, 
Chitta Sankara is uh, Vedana and Sanya, so it's more of the same. Yeah? Chitta Sankara is more of the feelings and perceptions that you have. Uh, and then you calm the Chitta Sankara, you calm down those feelings, they become more refined. Uh, there's a process there, more and more happiness, more and more peace, building up together. That's what this is pointing to. Uh, that is Vedana Nupasana. And the thing is that when you come out of your meditation and you have experienced so much happiness, uh, you you don't need to be told you don't need to contemplate dukkha you don't need to contemplate painful feelings you don't need to experience them because you know how painful they are because you're experiencing happiness you know that the body is just a mass of pain a mass of suffering sometimes we don't even aware of it but you you start to get a feeling because we are moving the body all the time even on the meditation cushion you're moving a bit back and forth because of pains in the body and problems so you understand that this body is a big problem. The more peaceful you are, the more understanding you have of the body. Yeah, actually, it's really problematic. And uh, so uh, this is an insight into the uh, samisa uh, dukkha, the ordinary carnal uh, suffering, the ordinary five sense suffering. You start to understand by seeing these feelings, the dukkha feelings disappearing. So that's kind of really powerful. Yeah, you don't have to focus on the painful feelings to understand them. In fact, often you can't understand anything because they are just too annoying. You can't really observe it properly. But when you come out of them and they disappear, the body is gone for the first time. You think, wow, that's so happy. This body is really problematic. That is when you understand what painful feelings really are because you have a contrast. Again, you are the frog out of the water. Because in the Satipatthana Sutta, it says, like I said yesterday, yeah, all of these feelings have to be um, experienced and understood. That's what Vedana Nupasana is. It talks about the pain, the happiness, all these things. And then you just experience the happiness. And that is enough to understand all the feelings. It's good news, isn't it? <laughs> it's great news. This is, kind of, this is why understanding the Sutta as well is so useful, because you know what you have to do. You don't have to go to Mr. Goenka and say, oh, Mr. Goenka says, okay, watch the pain in the body here. But uh, Mr. Goenka, I don't want to watch the pain in the body. Watch the pain in the body. Because very often these are teachers. Uh, Goenka died a long time ago already. So uh, they don't really know exactly what Goenka taught. So they just repeat his re- repeat what they have been taught to repeat. They have to say this. If this is the question, say this. Uh, and they kind of repeat. And sometimes it's too rigid. It's not flexible enough. It's not, uh, there's not enough kind of um, real appreciation for how to deal with these things. Um, and this is why I don't like these kind of rigid systems. Someone establishes a system as very rigid. Uh, there has to be a bit more flexibility, uh, understanding individuals, all of these kind of things. Uh, I don't. I, mean, I want to say, of course, that Gwenka meditation has done a lot of good for the world. And it's marvelous what they have done uh, but uh, it has its limitations. Anyway. Ui, okay. Uh, dear Ajahn Ramali, this is not really a question. Okay, fine, good. <laughs> but I just wanted to say thank you very much. Okay, that's, that's, that's really, that's even better. Uh, your retreats have always made me feel less stuck in the world and remind me of what is important. I appreciate the amount of thought you put into every word in the sutta and question and answers. I'm also grateful because you provided us with a framework to navigate in our life and practice, i.e. the suttas. You've challenged me to really investigate and point out the core aspect of the Dhamma in the suttas, which frankly I would not have thought to look until I started attending your retreats. Okay, that's really marvelous. Um, the bar for sila is so high, but it it shows and inspires me to practice well. May you rejoice, rejoice in the goodness you have helped to create, and I hope to see you again in the future. Much better to you and Ajahn Isarno and everyone involved. That's every one of you. So everyone gets the share of metta here. It's good, huh? <laughs> That's very nice. Okay, I'm glad you are enjoying it. That's wonderful. And um, okay. <laughs> So uh, I'll, we'll say our goodbyes tomorrow when we come to the end of the retreat. Um, dear Ajahn, you said that maybe you were a Buddhist monk in the past life. Uh, how many life as a Buddhist monk is required before liberation? Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, 
I guess that leaves lay people like us with no hope. No, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not about hope or no hope. I mean, you know, the thing is that how being a Buddhist monk in itself doesn't mean anything. It is how you live that matters. Yeah, there are so many dodgy Buddhist monks in the world, you know, that's the reality of it. They don't do anything and they become Buddhist monk because of tradition or because they, you know, they, whatever. There's all, all kind of reasons for these things. And it really depends on how you live the monastic life. If you live it well, it is very useful. But it's much better to live lay life well than to live monastic life badly or even neutrally without any kind of effort, right? So don't worry so much about this lay life or monastic life. Worry about how you live your life. Live it well. Build up the mindfulness. Build up the good qualities inside. Do what is required to move forward. Yeah, Think about that instead. So sometimes what happens is that you are a monk for a large number of lives, and then you stop being a monk after that. <laughs> then you go in reverse, right? You lose all those good qualities that maybe you had before. Because these qualities are not solid until you become a noble person. That's when they become solid. Before that, because you're doing really well, your wisdom is increasing, increasing, and suddenly your wisdom starts going down. You become more and more dull and stupid. <laughs> yeah, until you become so stupid, you start doing really foolish things, and then you don't know where you're going to go in the future. Huh? So uh, all of this is just highly, highly uncertain. Uh, live well, do the right thing. Yeah? move gradually forward on the path and then you are heading in the right direction. That is really uh, what you have to do here. So um, there is uh, there's no such thing as no hope. Uh, there's just uh, right and wrong practice, that's all here. All right. Dear Ajahn, how to practice Satipatthana Sutta in daily life? Many thanks. Okay, this is what you do. You, before work in the morning, you get up early, you brush your teeth, you maybe have a cup of tea, then you sit down on a cushion and you watch the breath. Then you are doing Satipatthana practice in daily life. And if you have even have enough clarity in the evening to do it then too, you can do it in the evening as well. This is how you practice Satipatthana in daily life. You do not practice Satipatthana in daily life by washing your dishes mindfully, no. By vacuuming mindfully, no. By working mindfully, I say no. I say that's all called sense restraint and satisampajanya. It is not called Satipatthana at that point. So whenever you do meditation and it's working for you, that is when you're doing Satipatthana in daily life, on retreats, or whenever. Okay. Whoa, this is good. Dear Ajahn, when will be my when will Maitreya Buddha come down? Which eon? Which century? How far apart are Buddhas born? How are these things predicted in the books? Many thanks. So Maitreya Buddha is due to come quite soon. <laughs> no, I you know. <laughs> There is one mention of Maitreya Buddha in the early suttas, and that is a dodgy, dodgy one. Yeah, so um, basically Maitreya Buddha doesn't exist. There's no such thing as Maitreya Buddha. All we know is that there will be future Buddhas. There will be more Buddhas because Buddha is a natural phenomenon. Every now and again someone is very wise, they become a Buddha. That's how you get Buddhas. So we know there will be Buddhas. We don't know when. If the Buddha, if our Buddha, Buddha Gautama, if he did not predict any future Buddha, why should, why should anyone else be able to predict a future Buddha? Why don't you predict a future Buddha? Might as well be you, yeah, who, who has the power to predict these things? And what is one of the fascinating things about the suttas is how few predictions are made. The Buddha doesn't really predict things. There's a few things that he kind of predicts. Yeah, He says that Venerable Ananda will become a an arahant before he dies and these kind of things but even those predictions are a little bit uncertain basically the buddha doesn't talk about the future uh, yeah and uh, i think probably a good idea that we don't do that either it's too uncertain uh, too kind of uh, unreliable uh. so um there is a uh, there is a book called the anagata vangsa 
Yeah, and I got one of the future lineage. And what that means is the future Buddhas. But no one knows who wrote this book. You know, the Buddha didn't write this book. So who has the right to who has the right to write these books? Who has the insight? Are they really reliable? These books? I don't know. I, I I would guess probably not. I think it's probably very unreliable. I trust the suttas because that is the word of the Buddha, and that is what I find interesting. There's someone obviously at the root of all this who had a lot of insight, and I trust that. But I don't trust anonymous authors who we have no idea about. I don't trust trust anonymous gods. What if there's an anonymous god? That doesn't really make any difference because these gods, from a Buddhist point of view, also don't necessarily have any wisdom. They're just gods. They're just hanging out, just enjoying themselves. Doesn't mean they have any insight into anything. This is kind of the Buddhist idea of gods. Yeah, They're just like glorified human beings. Often they are completely clueless. The Buddha goes up and, and or this famous Kevada Sutta, or this Kevada travels around all the celestial realms. He has the ability to go to all these realms. And he goes to all these realms and he asks all these gods. And he asks, uh, where do the four elements cease without remainder or find no footing or something like that? Uh, and these gods have no idea. So they point him up to a higher god, ask the higher god. Yeah? And they go up and up and up, this universe. Uh, and he goes up to Brahma. Uh, and he asks Brahma, where do the four elements cease without remainder? And Brahma says, I am the superior. I am the god. I'm the master of all. I'm the father of all created beings. Uh, and then this monk says, I didn't ask you about that. I asked you where did the four elements cease? This <laughs> <laughs> really cheeky fellow, this, this person. And then after a while, this Brahma, he kind of, he, he, Brahma thinks this monk is really thick. Yes, okay. He takes him to one side and he says to this monk, he says, well, listen, I can't say in front of all these other Brahmas that I don't know because they will think I'm clueless if I say that. But I have no idea. You have come to the wrong person. You come to the wrong God. Go back to the Buddha. He's the one who knows. So he goes back to the Buddha. And the Buddha tells him, you have to meditate like this and then the four elements cease without remainder. So the Buddhist idea of gods is always that they may be gods. They may have powers in certain ways, but they have their limits. If they didn't have any limits, they would be enlightened and they wouldn't be gods anymore. So we can't trust what people say or gods say or anything says. Yeah, This is kind of the, the Buddhist approach. It's very different from any other religion. And for that, don't take these things seriously. The future is uncertain. Now you have the teaching. Practice the teaching now. That is really the, the, the only answer to this. I know that there are lots of people in the world who kind of pray to Maitreya the Buddha and they are looking forward to Maitreya the Buddha. How, what a wonderful thing is the big, big statues of Maitreya the Buddha. And they worship Maitreya the Buddha as if this is an existing person. I think it's crazy. I think it's completely nuts what so many people in the world do. We don't. It's a pie in the sky. It's just nothing. It doesn't exist. That's the wrong way. And in fact, it's, it's a way of disrespecting our present Buddha. Our present Buddha has given us these teachings. It's the most wonderful gift that anyone can give you, a teaching that leads you out of suffering towards happiness. What more can you want? And then by putting those teachings to one side and kind of worshipping a pie in the sky, it's like a disrespect of the present teacher that we have. So forget about Maitreya the Buddha. Forget about all of that. Put it to one side and get back to reality here and now. Anyway, that's what I say. So I'm maybe not sure if everyone would say that, but that's, what I, that's my reply. Okay. Dear Ajahn, is it possible for a person to send energy to another for which he is charging <laughs> what charging like hundred and fifty dollars for a week? What? <laughs> okay, this is a this is his protection of non-Buddhist. Okay, I'm aware of some practicing Buddhist meditators take this as a treatment when they get tired and depressed and not feeling well and they feel recovered. They call this Reiki. Reiki. Okay. 
Okay. Send and I did another for which he is charging like hundred dollars for for a week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> does Reiki work? Uh, maybe it does. Yeah, I, I don't know. The, the kind of the world is a, a mysterious place, and uh, there's many many things going on in this world. Uh, is it possible to pass energy on from one person to another in this way? Yeah. I think it may be possible. I don't think it's impossible. But uh, instead of asking whether it works, I think what it often it is about the perception. If the person who gets the Reiki feels better, that is what matters. Yeah, And uh, whether it really worked, it must have worked in some way, otherwise they wouldn't feel better. Even if it's just psychological, it's still working in a certain way. It's psychological. Yeah, If you come to the Dhamma talk here and you feel better after you have left, it has worked somehow. Yeah, <laughs> Even if there is nothing really magical going on, it still works. What matters is that the person feels better. And exactly why, that's kind of irrelevant. So is it worth $150? Well, if you feel better, maybe it is worth $150, right? Who is to say? So I think exactly what is going on, I think is kind of irrelevant. The fact that the person feels better and they feel it's worth $150, that's what matters. But don't buy into it blindly. Yeah, sometimes people become blind. They think that, oh, it will work eventually, so I will keep on paying $150, and then after five years, maybe I will get some benefit. Don't, don't think like that. Also, yeah, be, be smart about this. Don't be taken for a ride. Actually know whether it is beneficial for you or not, and then it might be worthwhile. So, uh, yeah. All right. Respected Ajahn, are there any Arahants in the world currently <laughs> whom you know of? Uh, uh, it would be very inspiring to know if the, uh, of these beings. Many thanks. <laughs> are there any Arahants in the world? How, how would I know if there's any Arahants in the world? I haven't got a clue. How can anyone really know these things? It's, you know... Even the Buddha didn't really go around. Well, he, he might have said that certain people are Arahants, but it's not something you can really... It's very, very hard to know for absolute certainty. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is that there are people in this world who are very impressive, who may very well be Arahants. Uh, yeah, there are people who obviously have gone a very long way on the path, and when you meet them, you feel that there's something special about these people. Uh, and it's not just make-believe, because you can be around them for a long, long time, and you can see that their conduct is steady and appropriate and all of these kind of things. So there are things going on in this world that are very impressive. Are there Arahants? Maybe. Yeah, quite possibly. I, I think it's very likely that there are Arahants in the world, because the Dhamma is still here. Can I point with certainty who is Arahants? No. And if anyone tells you they can, then they are probably not telling the truth because it's very, very difficult to know these things. So don't worry too much about that. Just look at what is happening. Yeah, Look at people. Judge for yourself. Don't attach to these things. I sometimes hear things that people say, oh, this person, this monk so-and-so is an arahant. Yeah? And I ask, well, why do you think the person is an arahant? Oh, everyone says they're an arahant. Yeah. And I think, well, that is not a sign at all that an Arahant, if everyone says so, probably not an Arahant. Yeah, that's what I tend to think. I'm a very skeptical person like that. Uh, and uh, the answer is that majority of people are deluded. How do they know that this person is an Arahant? How easy is it for a lay person to judge a monastic, whether they're an Arahant or not? It's very, very hard to judge. So just be happy with what you see here. Yes, look, look at what you see. Trust your judgment. And if you see bad things, then don't get too involved because it's dangerous. If you see something very good and positive, well, then you can allow yourself to become more of a disciple and listen to those teachings. But be open, be honest. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by this idea. I, I hear people say, oh, yeah, you know, this monk is an Arahant. Don't say anything bad about that monk because it's bad karma. And I say, no. I say, this monk has done so and so. They can't be an Arahant. And if I don't say anything, that's bad karma. That's what I say. Because that's actually more truthful. If you pretend that someone is an Arahant, who obviously is not, 
That's crazy. And this happens so much in our world. People are afraid of telling the truth when there is a real problem. And that just leads to abuse. It leads to silliness. It leads to lack of honesty about what is happening in this world. So I think, and the Buddha says so, pretending that someone who is, is, you know, is enlightened or whatever, who is actually not, actually that's a very bad idea. Being honest about these things is very important. So use your own judgment. Don't trust me. What do I, from all you know, what do I know? You haven't got a clue whether I have the faintest idea about these things. If I said so-and-so is an arahant, you shouldn't believe it anyway. So what's the point of asking you? Anyway, I'm not sure if that satisfies you, but... Dear Venable, how can one know that one has entered the stream? Have you seen any monastic in your practice who is a Sotapanna? <laughs> same, answer, same answer as the previous one. So just play back the tape and listen again and you, you have it. <laughs> How can you know that you've entered a stream? Well, if you have entered a stream, you know. But if you haven't, then you can delude yourself to think that you have. So if you really have, you will know that you have. Because it is a... It is a revolution in consciousness. It is a revolution in outlook. Things get turned upside down. What you thought was happiness, you now see as suffering. What you thought was suffering, actually that was happiness. You understand non-self to the very core. Yeah, It is a, it is a very profound insight. It says in the suttas, you will never forget the time you became a stream mentor because it will be a, a, a kind of a, a very powerful change in how you look at the world. If you should, the way to find out if someone is a stream mentor is to ask them when did you become a stream mentor, and if they don't know exactly when, guarantee they're not a stream mentor. It just happens at one point. It's like a bang. It's an explosion. It's not an explosion. That's a very metaphorical explosion. But the path, as I said before, the path is gradual until enough qualities come together so that the final kind of letting go, bang, happens. And that final letting go, that is this massive change in perception of things. All right. Hello, Ajahn. Much gratitude. How not to have any expectations, especially when we are being so kind and empathetic and expect to be treated in a similar fashion, but all we get is indifference or rudeness in return. Many thanks. <laughs> um, you should be kind to others because it does feel good to you. When you're kind to someone else, you feel good about it. That's why you should be kind. And whether the other person gives you anything in return or not, you still feel good about it when you're kind. That is what you should do. So you should do it because you know it is a positive thing. Yeah? Because you know that accumulating kindness over a long period of time builds up your mind. You feel lighter, brighter, happier. You have less problems if you build up happiness over a long period of time. And if the other person doesn't treat you well, that's just a short blip of suffering here. Yeah? It doesn't last longer. If someone says, I hate you, you think, okay. And then you, you know, if that person says that, who cares what they say anyway? It's irrelevant what they say. If they hate you or not, it's just another person. Their opinion doesn't really matter. Yeah, people have all kinds of opinions. It doesn't matter how kind you are in this world. There will always be some people who don't like you because that's how the world works. The Buddha had problems. Yeah, if the Buddha had problems, imagine us. Of course, we're going to have problems too. The Buddha was disliked by some people. The Buddha got a hard time. Yeah, Why? Because that's how society is. There are so many different perceptions, so many different ways of looking at things. You can be the greatest, have the heart full of metta and loving kindness, and people will still dislike you. It's crazy, isn't it? So don't do it because of other people, because other people will never act the way you want them to act. It's impossible. It can't be like that. The world doesn't function like that. Forget about other people. Be kind because you know it's right. Because you know it is, a, it is the way to live that maximizes happiness for everyone. That's why you should be kind. And those people who are rude, it's their problem. Yeah, They need to learn. And the best way for them to learn is often to be kind towards them. I don't know about you, but when I meet 
kind person. I tend to listen to them after a while. I may be rude for a while. Uh, in the early days when I was with Ajahn Brahm, I was quite rude sometimes. Uh, I would kind of ask questions imper- impertinently, yeah, and kind of... Be, but Ajahn Brahm was never upset. Uh, he never angry. He would just reply to my questions. Ajahn Brahm never holds on to anything. It's one of the most amazing things with someone like Ajahn Brahm. He never holds on to anything. Yeah. He can be as rude as he wants, uh, and he just shrugs his shoulders, and it's not, not an issue. Yeah. And uh, so it's kind of it's very powerful when people don't hold on to any grudges like that, uh, because we often do that. Uh, so learn to be independent of other people. Uh, learn not to have your emotions manipulated by others. Uh, yeah, do what is right, because doing what is right is right. <laughs> yeah, and that is what matters. Uh, if it's right, it's right. Uh, doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Uh, it's hard, but it is uh, it is the only way to go. Otherwise, you are never going to be independent and uh, you master of your own destiny or anything like that. All right. So Okay, dear Ajahn, today's teaching was very powerful for me. Thank you so much. Could you please explain how can someone who has ill will to a person Behavior by way of body and speech, both is pure. Oh yeah, can you please explain how can someone have ill will to a person whose behavior by body and speech? Yeah, exactly. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a very interesting point. And I didn't really expand on that, but Ajahn Nisarno, he kind of, he, he didn't exactly reprimand me, but he <laughs> he reminded me afterwards that I, you know maybe I should have said something about that, and that's true. Uh, and it's a very interesting point. And this is exactly the point with, like the Buddha. Yeah, The Buddha is in the world and people had ill will against the Buddha. Not a good idea. Yeah, It's a bad idea. Someone who has loving kindness and compassion for everyone and you have ill will in return. And uh, this is the way we are because we misperceive. We don't understand that the other person actually is pure in body and speech and mind. Uh, it looks to us as if they're not. It looks to us as if they are treating us badly and when in fact they are not. Uh, so that's why we have to be very careful with our judgment uh, and we have to ensure we don't treat good people badly. So uh, there's a beautiful sutta where uh, the Buddha talks about what happens when people treat him badly. Uh, yeah, And he, there's a sutta of the, of the meal. Uh, a, you know, Buddha says it's like when you invite someone to a meal. Yeah. So everyone comes to your meal, and then everyone kind of shares the food. Yeah, they have they eat your food, and then they leave afterwards. And then the Buddha says, "Well, when they leave, the food that is left over, who does it belong to?" Oh, yeah, it belongs to the donor. Yeah, it belongs to the person who invited everyone. Yeah, he, he gets that food. And the Buddha says to this person who is rude, he says, "Well, exactly the same way. Yeah, you are all these bad words that you are giving, trying to give to me." They belong to you. Yeah, you have to keep them. You don't get rid of them in this way. I don't accept them. It means you have to keep them for yourself. Just like someone who gives food to others, that if they don't eat it, well, you have to keep it. In the same way, you get the result of those bad words. I don't accept those bad words from you. And uh, so uh, this is how the Buddha reacts. Yeah, He doesn't really worry about what other people say. And we should do the same. We shouldn't worry about other people's words. Uh, they are the ones who get problems because of that. Uh, but it is because we are not careful enough how we, in, how, in our judgment of other people. Uh, and we should be careful because sometimes you may meet someone who is very pure. And if you have ill will towards someone who is very pure without really any grounds for it, uh, well, you are just creating suffering for yourself in the future. So be careful uh, and not if someone clearly has bad conduct, okay, then it's okay to say they're not an arahant. But we should be, we should be circumspect because otherwise it can also be problematic. There's a middle way there. We shouldn't judge too fast, but we also need to judge sometimes a little bit to be to honest kind of judgment when your mind is clear about these things. There's a balance there. It's kind of useful when you meet someone who is very pure because they tend to become a mirror to you. Huh? Yeah, when you meet someone who has all these beautiful qualities, uh, 
and then you are angry with them and they just look at you with compassion when you're angry here because they know that you are the one who has the problem and after a while you become self-conscious is the problem maybe with me <laughs> because if the other person doesn't react if the other person just has compassion and kindness for you it comes a point when you start to become very aware of your own anger and you start to think, wow, maybe, maybe the problem is with me. And this is how the, what I mean by being a mirror. Yeah? Suddenly you start seeing yourself uh, instead. Uh, if the other person reacts with anger back, well then your own anger is justified. Yeah? So you don't need to see yourself clearly anymore. So the, you get into an argument and all these kind of things. Uh, but if the other person doesn't react, it actually can be very powerful. Uh, so it can be a very nice gift to give to somebody yeah, if someone is angry, not to get upset with them, but have compassion instead. Uh, it often has a, uh, has a powerful effect on people. Yeah. Okay, hi Ajahn. I was told recently that it is okay to sometimes compassionately lie. Uh, I would say yes, sometimes it is, can be okay. It really depends on the circumstances. But the kind of standard uh, story which Ajahn Brahm always tells and which I kind of take on board because it's a very convenient story to show how that can happen. Uh, and that was a story of in Perth, husband and wife. The husband was in hospital to have a heart bypass surgery. He was in a room with another man and this other man was also to have bypass surgery. Uh, and one day this other man, uh, he gets wheeled into the operating room uh, and he dies during the operation. It's very rare. In bypass surgery, these days is very standard. It's only, but there's a tiny percentage, 2% or something, or whatever it is, that die during the operation. Uh, then this other man in this room, his wife comes to visit. Uh, and so he asks, well, what happened to my mate? Yeah, my friend, is he, uh, is he all right? Uh, and the wife says, uh, yes, he's all right. That's lying. She knew that he had, had died. But she thought that, well, if I tell him the truth at this point, uh, it will just bring anxiety, it will bring concern, yeah? Because you see, maybe this doctor in this hospital is no good, maybe it's a bad doctor. Maybe most people, only 2%, but with this doctor, maybe 50% people die, yeah? <laughs> Probably we should have been fired a long time ago. Uh, and so she, she said that, uh, yeah? So is that the right thing to do? It is not a bad kind of lying, yeah? Was it entirely pure? Probably not. She had a lot of self-interest. It was her husband, after all. So she had a bit of self-interest in it. But um, it is, that is the kind of thing which is acceptable, yeah, in extreme examples like that. But very often, you don't have to lie. Very often, you can get out of difficult situations by saying, now is not the right time to discuss this. Yeah, let's discuss it some other time, something like that. That's an easy way to get out of things. Yeah, if, if well, this wife couldn't say that, let's not discuss that now. <laughs> that would have been kind of too obvious. But very often you can use that kind of excuse, yeah? And uh, then you're not really lying. You just know that this is not the right time to discuss things. Uh. Be careful with these kind of excuses, though, because sometimes we use compassion as an excuse when really we are protecting ourselves. Uh. Yeah, I, I want to lie because actually my ego gets hurt or something like that. Uh. Very often, it's not actually compassion, but it's self-protection. Uh, so you have to be very clear about what is going on. Uh, and uh, if it is just to look after yourself, then of course lying is, uh, is then it becomes like a kind of greed, a kind of uh, um, conceit almost. Uh, so um, yeah, but again, it's this idea of grayscale in uh, in. Uh, Virtue, yeah, virtue is not black and white. I think this is a very big um, misconception in Buddhism. People often ask, is this, is this bad karma or good karma? Well, it's not as simple as that. It's not either good or bad. Or very often it's somewhere in between. And that's why you don't know whether it's good or bad. It's kind of neutral very often. Or a little bit bad or a little bit good, yeah? But there is actions that are really evil and bad. That's really bad karma. And there are actions that are really, really good. And that's super good karma. A lot of things are just in between somewhere. Okay, we have come to the last question for this evening. Uh, hi, Ajahn. Thank you for your talk on ill will and resentment. Uh, I notice I often have fear of others resenting me. Uh, I suspect I want to be liked by all. Not possible, I guess, and past life encounters uh, perhaps uh, 
Yes, it is quite common. We want to be liked by others. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is one of, I think, kind of very, almost everyone has that. It's, it's not nice. If everyone hates you, it's kind of very unpleasant. So it's nice to be liked by at least by somebody. But uh, the idea is to learn to be kind without concern for what other people what other people think, yeah. Because if you are kind, you will generally be liked, yeah. People will like you because people like kind people. So because of that, just be kind and you will be fine. And if someone doesn't like you, okay, you can shrug your shoulders and say whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah? But if you seek to be liked, it kind of soils the kindness a little bit. Uh, you're no longer being purely kind simply because it is the right thing, yeah. And that's why I was saying before, be kind to strangers sometimes, yeah, someone who's really stranger. Say good morning to someone. Uh, I went for a little walk this morning and I said, I said good morning to some people and it was really nice. Yeah, Sometimes they smile back and they say good morning. And that's so nice. You know that you have, you know that there is some good communication going on there. You're creating an uplift in the world, yeah, because everyone feels a bit better when we feel that we are friendly with each other uh, and we are kind of living well. And... Um, and if it doesn't work sometimes, that is, that is kind of perfectly fine. So try to avoid that. Just know that if you live well, if you live with kindness, people will treat you well. If you are worried about being liked, that's okay as well. Sometimes we, these things are very deeply ingrained in us. And because they are so deeply inside of us, then it takes time to overcome this kind of desires of being liked. So it, it's okay too to be liked, yeah, or to want to be liked. Don't try to be perfect straight away. Yeah? Don't push this out of the way as well. Just notice that you still want to be liked. And then gradually, 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 you overcome that and you become more kind simply because kindness is right. If you, yeah. And it makes you a much freer person if you don't need to be liked. It makes you free of other people's opinions. It makes you free to say what is right rather than to say what you think they would like to hear. It creates freedom of spirit and freedom of everything if you can not be concerned about what other people think, say or do, etc. Yeah. Maybe past life encounters, perhaps. Yeah, this could also be a factor in all of this. Yeah. All right, that is the uh, last question for tonight. So, sorry, tomorrow? No, tomorrow. Oh, the last question for the retreat. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe we can have some question at at quarter to five. Yeah, see what happens. Yeah, yeah. We'll see what happens. Uncertain. There's always po possibility of. Uh, we never know what happens. But anyway, let's um, call it a night. And uh, as always, may you have a marvelous night and a good night's sleep. And then we'll see you back again tomorrow morning at, what time do we start again? Nine o'clock? No. Eight, eight. eight o'clock we start. Okay. Oh, they've forgotten when we start. Nine is the talk. Okay. So, okay. Sorry. That's what I, I'm only concerned about myself, you see. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, let's finish off by doing the Arahang Sama Sambudo.